Our guest today, Raj Shudi, has held titles like Director of Engineering, Head of Engineering, Founder, and CTO throughout his career. But he didn't start there. In fact, after getting his degree in computer science, he took one of the routes I believe can make for the strongest of developers. He went to work in test and quality assurance before working his way into software engineering and lead software engineering roles. Along his journey, he's worked for the likes of PicScout, Wikimedia Deutschland, Auctionata, and Fring, as well as started not one, but two of his own companies. In addition to his day job, Roz is a co-host on the podcast Tech Point Charlie, a podcast focused on topics in tech. Be sure to listen in as we catch up with Roz Shooty and hear how he built his career in tech. You're listening to the Developmentor Podcast, hosted by Grant Ingersoll. We have one goal on the show, to help you build a successful career in tech, no matter where you're from or where you're going. We do this by showcasing interesting people working across a variety of roles in tech and deep dive into their why. If you want to learn more, please visit our website at developmentor.com or follow us on Twitter at developmentor. Roz, great to have you on the show. Great to be here. I trust things are uh, going well in Berlin for you? Yeah, so far I'm very happy. Now, I think in the pre-show we we figured out that we maybe overlapped at Wikimedia and Wikimedia Deutschland by maybe a month, but it turns out you were on vacation while I was getting started. Is that right? Exactly. That's true. Yes. We, we yeah. kind of missed each other. Yeah, that's too bad. It would have been nice to meet in person. I know I was in uh, Berlin for WikidataCon, which I think was just maybe a month or two after I started. So uh, <laughs> I, we could have actually met in person had we yeah, I mean, yeah, had the opportunity. I and I'm assuming probably you were, you were also in the technical conference in uh, Atlanta. And I was, I was supposed to go there as well. Yeah, yeah, I was, was part indeed. of the organizers. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. Well, and of course, you, Berlin is one of my favorite cities in the world. I've been there many times. I've spoken at one of my favorite conferences there a number of times called Berlin Buzzwords. So I'm sure we probably know a, a number of people who, who live and work in tech in Berlin. Yeah, I assume so. <laughs> well, so why don't we why don't we jump in and kick things off here, Roz? I would love to hear how how you got your start in tech. What inspired you to go get that degree in computer science? Wow, I think I have a, a relatively boring story in that regards. I think a lot of the tech people kind of have a similar story. I just started writing code as a kid. I don't know. I loved it. I started learning Pascal in school when I was like thirteen. I was a swimmer, but when I was turned 15, I realized that I'm not going to be an Olympic swimmer and why waste a whole lot of hours in suffering and <laughs> kind of uh, became a hobby of mine just to write nonsense stuff with a console. It was obvi obvious to me when, when I'm starting university, it's going to be in computer science. Well, and so, you know, was there somebody in particular introduced you to it or was there a class you had to take as part of, I don't know, junior high, it sounds like if you were 13? Exactly. It was a class in junior high. It was like a computer class where the teacher showed us also some programming languages. And I think we had uh, Visual Basic and Pascal. Just kind of yeah. kickstarted the entire thing for me. 
Yeah, Pascal was my first programming. Well, I guess, you know, basic back in the way back in the day. But Pascal was my first language that I learned in anger, if you will. That's what they taught. (laughs) That's what they taught in college when I got there. So (laughs) I learned on Pascal and promptly forgot all of it because Java came along. Yes, I have. If you show me syntax of Pascal now, I wouldn't even be able to recognize it. You know, I looked it up the other day. I think I saw something on Hacker News about Pascal. There's, uh, well, there's somebody at least trying to revive it and modernize it as a language. I, you know, we'll see with all the languages that are out there these days whether it'll take hold. But uh, <laughs> what's the motivation to do that? <laughs> that sounds well, like I, nostalgia more than anything else. Yeah. Well, what's the motivation for creating any language, right? That's I mean, there's. We live in the renaissance of languages, I feel like, you know, back in the 80s, it was all C and Fortran and COBOL, and then Java, of course, dominated for a long time. And then these days, it seems like there's a new language every day. So. <laughs> yes, if, especially if you're from, from the front-end world, where you have a new framework that changes the entire concept of the front-end language every two minutes. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, that's very sure. Fun. Well, so now I want to go back a little bit. You know, I said in the lead in there, you know, one of my favorite ways for people, especially if they don't quite know where they want to lead into tech or they're looking for that first job is to, to get that first job in quality assurance, in test, especially if you can work in automation of it. I'm curious, you know, what, what was kind of your early career mindset? What led into those first few roles in test and how did you, how were you thinking about your career back then? I mean, it's kind of one of those things that naturally happened, I guess. I just saw a job ad looking for a student quality assurance. I was still a student, so I applied. Uh-huh. I got the job and there I kind of, I don't know, had this ability to also learn some stuff and to do things while I move. And from that point on, the move to be a software engineering test was more logical than to, once I, I graduated, than to actually just start something new. Because I kind of felt I, I like the, the macro vision of stuff. It's not just like to focus on something small, but have like a, an actual nice view. But I wanted to more focus on the, at least have a more of a development role. Because initially as a student, it was more manual. And I played around with some code to, you know, for my own learning. And that's kind of how it started. That's how at least the test part started for me. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so you, in those early years, you were doing kind of the manual testing, as we call it these days, the point and click and try to break things and put in, you know, bad values into forms and all of that kind of stuff. And, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Well, so then, you know, changing from test to software engineering, it's not, you know, it's not a huge change, but it's still a change that requires, you know, some new ways of working. Tell us about how you made that change. Tell us about how you grew into those first few roles in software engineering. I think maybe you were at, is it Seismic and PickScout? Yeah, exactly. Actually, I think with, with that, it was the biggest change was more that you had to focus. As a test engineer, if you do, especially if you do end-to-end automation, you can have a product view. You have like a holistic view of a product. Whereas a software developer, it's kind of hard to get your, like your head out of the trenches and see how things actually relate to one another in, in the big scope of things. That's something that I had to adjust to because I wanted still to have a macro view, but still I had to learn to focus. I had to learn to, to actually work on, on what are skills that I need to deliver features as well that are not um, just quality driven, but also how to move fast. As, mm. Also as a tester, as a person come from test, 
you're kind of educated to find stuff. I think as developers and as product-minded people, especially if you're a product-minded developer, that I think I was, you start educating yourself on how to move things and how to kind of mitigate risks as to deadlines as well. So these are things that I didn't know how to do and I had to kind of really train a lot to get there. Right. Is there any specific like software engineering or coding things that you had to learn as well? I mean, obviously we're learning all the time, but I mean, do, <laughs> does anything stand out as like, oh, hey, I hadn't done X before and now I had to do X? I basically had to do everything from scratch. I, I knew how to work with Selenium or something like that back then. Learning, for example, oh, it's very old, but it's seismic. We worked with WCF and, and C Sharp. So I had to learn basically how to how to design APIs and, and also what does it mean that, you know, to, to think about consumers of APIs. I had to learn how to, um, I don't know, databases, how to use indexing. Like I used to be a consumer of a database. I used to check right. values on a database and now I had to write values and make sure that things are, are scalable. I had to learn how to use threading uh, and all that. I had to also learn how to write front end because I was a full stack developer. So besides the backend part that I had to learn relatively from scratch, because even though code is code, the design patterns and, and the expertise yeah. is different, I had to also learn front-end, which was completely irrelevant. Because when I started learning Flex, which is Flash Action Script, it was already dead at that point, mm. <laughs> which made my life lovely for my next job when I had to start learning JavaScript for the front-end stuff. Well, so now... Was this all self-taught at this point or was it the company kind of helping you get up to speed on this? It was mostly self-taught in a sense where, of course, the company that uh, the company I worked for, Seismic, had a really good team and manager and they set like a really good system for me where every task that I would do kind of fits into the skill that only just pushing me a bit higher than what I am right now. But the, mm. the goal, or at least the way that it worked in that team specifically was, you kind of need to figure it out yourself. That's like what's expected from you. We just make sure that the path you take is a path that we know is reasonable and pushes you forward. But you can ask us questions. But at the end of the day, part of it is this autonomy, right? Like you, you need to kind of figure those things by yourself. And we did code review. So that's uh, a great system to get feedback. And I got right. a whole lot of feedback, I can say that. <laughs> <laughs> what stands out for you there is maybe a tip or two for our listeners, either on how to give or get feedback. Because that's oh, often wow. a really challenging uh, aspect of, especially early on in your career, how to how to get feedback. Although I, you know, I'll say it out loud, I still struggle with it uh, as well. I don't think there's a silver bullet. I mean, we're all different people. So I'm gravitating more to being direct, but empathetic. So instead of saying that this is terrible or this is garbage, as sometimes we developers tend to do, I would say, yeah, maybe it's not optimal. <laughs> just like, just to kind of, <laughs> but still uh, the same message should be there, right? Like this is not how you should write it. There is a design pattern you should follow. Uh, maybe take a look at this code or, or maybe we can sit together, but write comments that are direct. And I think also something that we lost in today's era, which I don't think we do anymore, but we did 10 years ago, at least, or 15 is we actually did uh, code reviews together. I used mm -hmm. to sit with a senior developer and we w walked through the code together and I saw how, how he or she kind of went through the code from the tests, for example, to the features, asked me about uh, stuff. And at the end mm -hmm. of the day, you saw that also there is this like, we shouldn't bike shed. I think a lot of the times when do those things and we give feedback. We give feedback for everything we see that is wrong. But at some point, we also need to say, but yeah, like 70% of that feedback specifically, it's not for this thing that we're talking about. Just 
take into account yeah, for real yeah. life. And 30%, that's what I wanted to fix. It's like this one, two, three things. Yeah, I think one of the words we've been using lately around the feedback loop is, you know, so certainly direct, but also productive, I think is yeah. is a better term than some of the other ones around there, like civility, et cetera. Sure. I mean, you should bring a certain amount of respect to the feedback that you're giving, but but you want it to be productive. I think that's what you're getting at is, you know, let, let's not waste time on all the, hey, you're dumb or whatever. <laughs> let's let's exactly. be productive. Let's focus on getting it figured out and, and go from there. So Roz, you know, somewhere in the middle of all this, at least on paper, I think I see two pretty significant things happening. And I'm not really sure on the order here, but I'd love to hear more about it. One, it looks like you moved from Israel to Berlin. And then you also started your own company, which I believe was called AutoMine. Tell me about those two inflection points in your, in your life and your career. So AutoMine is something I actually started in Israel. It was while working, I realized that I've accumulated a whole lot of experience as a, as a person coming from test engineering into Israel, basically, which is a startup type of nation. So you had a lot of startups growing and they had growing pains. And as a developer, as a senior developer back then already, that had a test mindset, I thought I had a really good clue about how to help companies kind of adjust from that early on stage, we do everything we want, we break production, it's not, it doesn't matter, into a stage where, oh, now we actually have users, we have uh, customers who are paying, those mistakes are more costly. And how can we also scale without adding more people all the time? Because, you know, more features you add, more regression you need to do. It was a crazy experience. I think that was also a realization that I am not a business person. <laughs> And that's a good thing that I was, uh, at some point, I had a co-founder joining me to take over the, the business part of things. But in the end, I, we kind of shut down when I moved to Berlin because it just didn't work out anymore if I'm remote. Gotcha. I suppose back then, too, you know, remote wasn't as easy and it, you, you weren't like all within the EU. So it might be easier if you were all within the EU zone or something like that. But so then you moved to Berlin as well, which obviously, you know, people move all the time. But I'm curious what spurred that? Was it for an opportunity? Was, was there something else going on? I just love Berlin. I moved for Berlin. <laughs> ah, very cool. So you, you yeah. didn't have necessarily a job lined up or anything. I already interviewed from Israel to several places, but I knew I'm looking in Berlin. So I just looked and uh, found a job and moved. Berlin was the selling point. Yeah, I know. It's, it's a fantastic city. When we can travel again internationally, I, of course, recommend yes. everybody visit Berlin. Uh, although it's, it's been amazing how much it's changed and grown over the, you know, say the past 10 years, especially the tech industry there. It's, it's pretty fascinating to see the startup culture that's now in Berlin. Yes, it wasn't here. I mean, I moved to Berlin six and a half years ago. It, it wasn't as big as it is today. And when I used to travel to Berlin, like eight, nine years ago, I was looking for jobs even back then, but there weren't any. So it's like something that when I moved, it was just because opportunities starting showing up. I kind of planned to move to Berlin for a while. I just wanted to do it safe. So yeah. that's kind of uh, crazy how it completely exploded. Not sure how to ask for that raise at work? Perhaps you're perplexed on whether you should change careers or not. Maybe you're debating whether you should get another degree. Or perhaps you're not quite sure how to negotiate for equity at your startup. Listen up, because we here at Developmentor are launching a new topic-based episode format that'll air once a month as a bonus to our 
usual interviews. In each episode, our panel will tackle the toughest topics in building a successful career in tech, as well as discuss listener-submitted questions, all with the goal of providing you deeper insights into how to navigate your career in tech. So if you have a question on your career that you'd like answered, drop us a note and we just might answer your question on air. Head over to developmentor.com slash questions and fill out the form to submit your question or you can drop us an email at hello at developmentor.com. If your question is chosen to be read on air, we'll send you a thank you gift. Be sure to hit subscribe on your favorite podcast player to catch our new monthly bonus episodes as well as all of our regularly scheduled interviews. We'll delve into travel here real quick, but uh, what's your favorite neighborhood and, and thing to check out? Like if, if you had guests from out of town, where what would you do as maybe your top one or two things to, to see or do in Berlin? Oh, it really depends. I mean, every every neighborhood has a different vibe. I live yeah, in Penzlarberg, sure. which is like a bourgeois type of place where it's like, uh, I don't know if you like cafes with like really good coffee and like a hipster type of bread. That That's the place for you. If you're more like into <laughs> kind of partying or things, I don't know, like for um, the younger people, I guess, or at least young at heart, I would say going to, to Kreuzberg, to Oslo, it's like uh, even Friedrichshain in some places. It really depends. So it yeah. really depends what you're looking for. No, I've been, been to both of those. They, they are indeed fantastic. I One of my favorite things in Berlin is just sitting at a neighborhood bar, cafe, whatever you want to call it, and having a beer under the trees with friends. I mean, it's, there's such a such a friendly bar culture there of just yes. like kind of hanging out and people aren't getting stupid. Of course, there's people who do get stupid, but, you know, just like that. We're, we're chilling with friends. It's such a such a good vibe. Continuing on, this is not a travel podcast, <laughs> even though it feels like one at the moment, just because I'm waxing nostalgic about missing Berlin here, especially because I was supposed to be there in April again <laughs> this past year. But not too long after those two things, I think you also then went into engineering management. And and going into management is, a, I think, a question many people face in their career. How did you approach answering that? Was this something oh, you fell yeah. into or were you deliberate about it? And how did you approach it? I actually didn't want to be a manager. I even at, at some point when I worked in Israel and Seismic, I, I was promoted to a tech lead, which was somewhat of a leadership position. And I hated it so much that after a year I resigned and just moved some, somewhere else. Nice. Uh, in Berlin, it just kind of happened. I mean, I, I joined to a company called Okshanata as a senior developer. We basically, me and a, another product manager, we just owned the topic and the topic was very successful. So we got to hire some people. And at some point, this topic became three topics. And I found myself managing like teams without even intending to. But I also think I was more mature at that point. Initially, when I was kind of promoted to a tech lead that I didn't want, I just wanted to write code. I, I was more focused on, on improving myself because hmm. I was more into what it means to be a better developer. And when I, I don't know, kind of transitioned into management not intentionally. It was more about how can I be better for people? How can I make the product better? How can I make things better for the organization? And that's a different mindset. I think you kind of need to work on yourself first to be able also to feel secure to kind of letting that part a bit go away at that point. Yeah. So it was definitely not intentional though. 
Oh, that's interesting. But when did that realization happen? I often find for people switching, you know, because this is truly a career switch, right? Yes. Going into management. I think Charity Majors, one of their earlier guests on the show, talks a lot about this. Is like, you know, hey, folks, being an engineering manager, even though the word engineering is in there, it, it is not the same role or just the extension of engineering. It is truly a different role. I'm curious, did you have an aha moment on that or did it just kind of naturally come forward that, hey, you needed to shift the way you think about it? It was more like the team that I had back then placed a mirror in front of me. So it was a reality where they told me, hey, you are our leader. You're trying to write code, but you're inefficient because you're in 27 meetings. You're blocking us because you have uh, pull requests waiting for a change, but also you're not taking care of things. Uh, so you kind of need to commit, to commit to one thing. It was an honest discussion, which I really love. And at that point, I just made a decision. I made a decision to say, okay, I'm a junior engineering manager. I need to learn this profession from scratch if I want to do it right. And because I, I felt like I prefer that than to, to be a developer in the team at that point gotcha. in time specifically. Um, yeah, Charity Majors, by the way, was also a guest on my pod, which I, we had a lovely discussion exactly about that and also nice. other topics. Well, yeah. we'll be sure to link that up. Uh, and I, I definitely want to talk about the podcast here in a minute. But so I'm curious, like, how did they approach this with you? Because that's that's like an intervention <laughs> right? <laughs> that we're talking about here. Like, did they just sit you down and like, hey, Roz, you got you, you to gotta decide, you got to commit? We had a retrospective, which I, I generally am a huge fan of. And as an engineer, I was always a fan of retrospectives, even back then when I wasn't a manager. We had an honest retrospective, and we always tried to have action items in the retro. And they basically all voted for me to have two iterations when I, where I don't write code because they were so big at that point, where they kind of mm. forced me to focus on something else. Yeah. And we measured that and that was way better. It was, it was actually, <laughs> I'm so proud of those engineers because they, they made me a better manager by just like, as I said, just placing a mirror in front of me and just like letting me understand what I'm doing and how it affects the ecosystem of our teams. And that was amazing. So I, yeah. I, I have to thank those people over and over again. Yeah, that's fantastic. It's hard to, I mean, again, that's that good feedback. So you said, you know, okay, hey, I'm a junior engineering manager. How did you go about learning the craft? Because that is, uh, you know, it, it's a fuzzy craft, if you will, right? So how did oh, you yes. go about learning it? Generally, I just, as I did anything else, I guess, a lot of it is reading. I mean, you kind of need to, as we were developers, I was reading about design patterns and I was reading about uh, clean code or, or solid principles. As a manager, you start reading about management and then trying to figure out who you are in this. I mean, I can say as a developer, reading clean code was nice, but I never really prioritized that over delivery, right? So as a manager, mm -hmm. you can read about different techniques and styles and you kind of need to understand who you are in, in this ecosystem and, and who you are as a person. And I think mm -hmm. maybe one of the things that are difficult or at least were difficult for me in the beginning is I always try to emulate. I have this manager that was uh, one of my first ones. It was amazing, but I'm not him. And initially I tried to be him, but I'm never going to be him, right? Like we're, we have different styles. So I had to find myself and kind of compose who I am from managers of head, but also from reading mm. and also from my own, I don't know, self, right? And that's basically how I, I took that into it. And also experimentation and asking for feedback all the time. I mean, and asking for feedback is not just like your managers or, or something. Also, the people you're managing. What can I do better? 
what have I, haven't I done right? What other managers in your career have done better in this sense? So have an open system with people. And I still do that, I think, till today. And I probably will do it till the end. Yeah. And also kind of um, not see my manager in the classical hierarchical way, but more as a support system. That helped me a whole lot when I, I just honestly told myself, this is a supportive role. So what I need to do is to be supportive and, and to look at things on a maybe on a broader level and see what's the goalpost, just to make sure that the goalpost stays where it's supposed to stay, because then the team could get there. And that's the work I probably should do. And then also clarify to the team what are what are the, the I don't know, the criteria to succeed and not to overburden myself with the, with the how. And I guess all managers will admit to that. There is a negative return on investment. As more as you invest on management, you get a negative return on your technical skills. So you kind of need to find <laughs> sure. also a, a way to also say, okay, I'm no longer a senior developer as well, right? I'm, I used to be one. I'm no longer yeah. one. So open and create trust, which honestly is still a problem for me. I'm not going to lie. I, I still need to work on that to hire people and then to say, I don't know, you know what you're doing. I said, I said the what, you said the how, and I'm moving away. And, you know, once in a while still do some due diligence and rubber duck, but Kind of let your voice be, uh, in, I don't know, a 99% of a voice and not a 100%. Yeah. Uh, and let the development team to have the So they have the veto, at least. Because at the end right. of the day, I don't know, talking about on-call engineering, they need to wake up in the middle of the night. So yeah. I always give them that priority to make those decisions. And they need to have the ownership. I like that. Yes. Although, like, you know, it's, it's interesting because... Even as an engineering manager and as you go up the chain, I, I do think it's important that you you retain, you know, there still is the word engineering in the title. Oh, yes. And, and uh, you know, you have to be able to call BS on technical decisions in an appropriate way, right? So you ideally you have a, a team that doesn't require you to do that very often, but you often, you know, you're still in a position where sometimes the decision does need to be made and because it's, you know, it's it's fifty fifty on on which way to go, right? And and so you still have to maintain some of those skills, at least in my experience. Totally agree. I'm, I'm curious, Roz. You know, on one of your bios, I think you say, you know, you like to talk about engineering culture, and obviously, as a manager, director on up the chain, culture is a big part of what you're trying to build. I mean, first off, what in your mind makes for a good engineering culture, and then how do you cultivate that? I would say it's kind of dependent on many things. But for me, one of the things that's super important is being friendly and direct. Uh, as I said, kind of empathetic or maybe kind is the better word. Be kind, but still honest. Because I think honesty and conflicts, they drive better solutions. But if you, if you add animosity or anger into this, then you're no longer talking about the solution. You're just like having a fight. And yeah. the other thing is pragmatism. I think sometimes our industry is so stuck into finding the perfect solution. And we yeah. all, as developers, we all criticize product people for being waterfall sometimes, right? Oh, you want a perfect solution. But we as developers tend to over-engineer so much. We tend to always try to find the best solution to deliver to production instead of finding a solution and then iterate. And we do the same thing with our engineering as well. So I would say pragmatism is super important. But next to that, honesty and, and, and kindness. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And then, you know, and of course, hiring and then cultivating people into that, making sure they know your values, I think, know Indeed. the team's values uh, is so important. 
transitioning here, you know, you're a pretty prolific writer. We'll link up your, your blog and website on here. And you're, you're also a podcaster on tech topics. You know, you've got a full-time job. I mean, I'm, I'm, I think in the similar boat here, but uh, what inspired you to take up all this extra work and and do these two things, you know, like podcasting and writing and a full-time job? Maybe that's also a link between us. So I started the podcast when I was working at Wikimedia. I kind of had, I don't know, a moment at Wikimedia where I was talking about processes. And I heard a lot at Wikimedia about how people hate waterfall. Waterfall is the worst thing ever. And I just quickly gave a nice 15-minute talk about how I called it, let me turn you on to waterfall. And I'm not saying waterfall (laughs) is right. I'm just saying waterfall was right for the era. And it's talking about how when you shipped stuff back then, you literally shipped it on containers, like not Docker yeah. containers, like actual containers on a, on a, sh- on, on a, <laughs> a ship that shipped hardware. Yeah. So the cost of actual fixing things on production was very expensive. So it made yeah. sense. The only problem with, with Waterfall is it overstated welcome. And that's kind of also how I feel generally uh, about it. And I gave a talk and I realized that Yeah, kind of, maybe, I don't know, I kind of convinced people I didn't think I would. I talked to my spouse, who's also a product person, and we said, hey, maybe we'll have those conversations we have at home anyhow, right? We talk about product, we talk about engineering in in our evenings. Why not once in a while record our coffee talks and kind of how it uh, spiraled down into this uh, this podcast. (laughs) That takes away so much of my time, yeah. (laughs) I love that. Well, you know, and... For me, like, you know, I I grew up in Waterfall and, you know, a a lot of the angst against it is just like the angst against anything, which is there's bad examples of it and there's good examples of it. You know, if you're building a submarine and it's going to take you five years to do it, you know, (laughs) you you better be able to have long term planning. Here's the funny thing about Waterfalls, right? They're full of eddies and back currents and you know, the folds back on itself all over the time, right? They change like waterfall has plenty of room for iteration in it, right? It's just, you know, the consultants can't sell you on it. So therefore it's not the right thing, right? Just like with agile these days, right? (laughs) You know, now agile's on its way out because the consultants have made their money on it, right? (laughs) I think I read Martin Fowler when someone asked him about um, what he thinks about the state of agile. And he replied, out with the old, in with the new, meaning like uh, agile is the new waterfall, basically. And I was like, ah, that's, yeah, that kind of makes sense. And I think uh, the concept of being agile is kind of odd to me. I I mean, in the sense where agile has strict rules that comes from those external companies telling you how to do agile, which is strict as a wall. You have iteration, you have to do those things, one, two, three, four, five. And I always thought about it more as being adaptive and and attentive, right? Like, what are my goals? What's the right way to move there? Let's do whatever we need to be as efficient as we can. And, uh, you know, you take the benefits and uh, you kind of weigh them against uh, the downsides. Yeah. Newsflash for the entire world here, right? Hot take by by Grant and Roz. But, you know, (laughs) hey, as a team, pick something that works for you, document it. (laughs) <laughs> retro it and every night you know and then stick to it <laughs> exactly i mean if you tell me what is a process i would start a new team with i would say just have a retro every two weeks and the rest will come seriously yeah. i don't need anything else if you need oh, dailies, have the dailies if you don't you'll find yourself writing your dailies 
I don't know if you have a great communication in the team and you don't need to have a point where you talk, all great. I don't care. Have a retro, make sure that you actually iterate because um, a team is an immutable object. Everything, any, ch- any change you will add to the team will change the team. So you have a new person in the team or a person leaving or something. You kind of need to always have a point where you iterate on, on yeah, what works I for a team. It. The rest... I don't really care. I'm as, a, I'm as a manager. I care about the delivery. I care about the quality. I care about other things. I honestly, my engineer managers already know that. Once in a while, they talk to me, I want to have a change in the structure. I'm like, I don't want to do whatever you want. Yeah. Well, and document it so yes. that when you add somebody new, they know the principles. Yeah. Indeed. Well, so so that, that's a great segue into how you, you know, how you started this show coming back to Checkpoint Charlie. Obviously, yeah. love the play on words there with Checkpoint Charlie <laughs> in Berlin, showing your love of Berlin there. But, yep. you know, what's it about? What can our listeners expect? What kind of topics do you cover? Uh, you know, what do you what do you all get into on Checkpoint Charlie? It's mostly unscripted. I mean, it's not mostly. It's it's. T- completely terribly as the editor unscripted so uh, (laughs) we basically come with a topic that is multifaceted we try not to talk about one specific thing but more about how those things work so uh, yeah my spouse she's a product person we have uh, a data scientist as a a host and we have also another software developer who's not a manager and that kind of how we find those topics that are in an interplay between us or just things in our industry so we can Talk about the, the connection between product and engineering as to tech debt or about user stories. And we had two different episodes about those things or just about open office plans, which we also discussed from all of our perspectives and shared our general hate to open office plans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very nice. Uh, what's, uh, what's a good episode for our listeners to start with? Like, where would you recommend? Like, what's your flagship episode, if you will? I think episode six is where we had a guest about organizational culture. If people like the topic, I would say this one. I'm also kind of biased. As I said, charity majors were also on our podcast and I'm I'm like a huge dork fan. So yeah, that on-call engineering episode was great. And I loved just talking to char- charity majors, which is a person I've been kind of following on Twitter for such a long time. So I would say one yeah. of these would be great. Yeah, she's amazing. And we'll, we'll we'll be sure to link those up in the show notes. Coming back to your career, you know, I, I often like to say, you know, careers aren't all sunshine and rainbows. You know, there's there's good days, there's bad days, there's good jobs, there's bad jobs. Maybe not bad, but, you know, I'm curious how, what what's one thing that's maybe the best thing about your role? And what's been one of the more challenging things about being in this role of engineering manager? Let's say, let's focus on the manager side of it for this question. The best thing is the ability to influence on a, on a larger scope to kind of have this, I don't know, a really big team that I'm kind of managing right now and see how they're productive. And I think the stress, the stress is, is rough. I mean, you need mm-hmm. to kind of make decisions and, and, and to do things that are taking a toll on you because you know that, I don't know, those small mistakes when you have big, big vision could be destructive for a department. Like, uh, I don't know, I'm doing budgeting, for example. If I miss our infrastructure cost, it might mean that I need to, you know, do something that I don't want with my personal, like personnel budget. So all those things are heavy on your soul. And that's, that's difficult. That's difficult. And that's why I think those positions are usually also tiring sometimes. <laughs> 
tiring's the understatement, I think. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, and you know, and there's there's obviously people at the end of these decisions, right? And that that's where it gets often the most challenging, I would imagine. Indeed. That's what I meant also with the budgeting. At the end yeah. of the day, when you need to make decisions, you need to make decisions. And also you have someone that I love was was a, ma- a manager that shouldn't be a manager calls it the kindergarten. And I understand what he's saying. <laughs> I don't think it's a kindergarten, but I kind of appreciate sometimes that sometimes you feel like that you're herding cats, that that's the, the mm. thing, right? Like you have all those people, they want to do whatever they w- want and you kind of need to bring them together and make them understand that there is, there is a goal. There is, you need to kind of focus on something. Yeah, we are here at the end of the day. We are here at the end of the day to deliver value for the organization, whether that's for profit or nonprofit or whatever, you know, like, hey, it'd be great if we could all just work on whatever we wanted, whenever we wanted, but we are here together. And so let's work on this thing together. Exactly. What's been the most surprising thing about your career today? What was, you know, something 18-year-old Roz didn't, didn't think would ever have happened or would, have, would be totally blown away that you're doing? Oh, I like people. I, I, I'm shocked by that. <laughs> I mean, ah. I love people management. I thought I would be one of those grumpy developers who just say, uh, leave me alone and tell me what to do. But I actually became a person who's like into the product. What is the, like, talk to people, get people inspired. Um, that's actually something that I'm, I'm shocked by now that I'm thinking about myself as, as an 18-year-old. Uh, did was there a particular moment? Or was, was it that intervention? Was, it, was there a particular moment that changed that view? I think that, that yeah, I, I mean, that intervention was also like uh, at a later phase. When I started hiring people for that team, when I was even a developer in that team, at least in my perspective I was, I started enjoying working with people because I kind of hired people according to the values I had and what drove that product to be successful. And that's where I kind of realized, oh, wow, I have, I have, I don't know, I like that person. I like to work with this person. I like this addition of the person to the culture we had. Kind of shocked me. I don't know. I uh hmm. Never had that before. Yeah, those are the high highs I, I love too, right? When you when you make that good hire and somebody comes on board and it's, uh, in fact, I was interviewing Hillary Turnipseed, which I think her episode will appear before us, so it's okay to say, but she was, you know, she talks about, it's not just about culture fit, but it's about culture add. Exactly. Right? And what, you know, because presumably if they're not adding to your culture, then why do you need them? <laughs> right? Like exactly. They're, Exactly. If they're just a carbon copy of somebody else, then hey, who cares, right? Roz, I, I want to bring this on home now for you and let you get on with your day. I want you to put on your mentoring hat for a moment. What's your best career advice? That that nugget that sums up across, ideally, you know, your your time in test, your time as an engineer, that, that growing into being a manager. What, what's your best career advice for folks? For everything, I would say, if it's I don't know if it's for a developer or a manager, it's enjoy the ride and try to make the best out of it. And if it's for specifically for managers, transitioning into management is is a whole lot and kind of acknowledge that it's about uh, learning. It's about your junior now at something else. If you would move from being a developer to be, a, I don't know, a data scientist, you would learn a whole lot of things. It's exactly the same thing, only with people. And people are not data, they're trickier. And yeah, I don't know, be pragmatic. I mean, that would be my my biggest thing. Just try to find pragmatic solutions. Yeah, I'm smiling ear to ear. Like that's one of my guiding principles is just be pragmatic, find solutions, like let's work through it. We'll iterate, lather, rinse, repeat. So I, I love <laughs> that advice. It's 
you know, especially like you said earlier in engineering, you often want the, you know, perfect solution and let's face it, like there often isn't one. So let's, let's just figure it out together. Yeah, exactly. I mean, generally, if you think about it, everything moves so fast that even if you have a perfect solution, it probably not will be great in three months. I kind of thought about rewriting the three little pigs. That that book is basically tell, telling like a story about everyone probably knows it, but that the first pig is building a house quickly, but then the wolf comes and the other one is building one from wood, and then it get burns or something, and and the third one is like doing a brick house it takes a long time, but it's effort well done. For software engineering, it's basically the opposite. Probably the third one will freeze to death. <laughs> or build a house after it was flooded and died. Like the first one probably had the best idea. Like you build a build a straw house and inside you start improving and, and kind of maybe build a new one inside of it or something. Yeah, it could be yeah. like a cool uh, intro to do agile for children or adaptability <laughs> for children. <laughs> we'll be watching books bookstores for that, uh, Roz, any day now. I think that's fantastic. Uh, yeah, yeah, I have a three-year-old, so I'm like thinking about uh, <laughs> about exactly those topics. I haven't even thought about that book in so long, but uh, you know, you made me realize, you know, of course, that the wolf just showing up at the brick house before the brick house was done. You know, exactly. we wouldn't be we wouldn't be talking about the brick house either. So. Yeah, I read it to my kid, and I was like, "Yeah, this is kind of terrible." Yeah, well, that's most children's stories, right? That's, Especially the old yes. ones. Uh, but you know, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a wolf eating pigs there, so like you're yeah. eating your protagonists in that story. So yeah, <laughs> well, you know, back in the day, that's how you learned, right? Is you yeah. you all the stories were about bad things happening, right? Yes. So that's as a way of uh, yeah, like all those German, all German folklore books, like yeah. Hansel and Gretel, and all those things are terrible. They are definitely dark, but uh, like I think as a kid, you learned though, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I learned not to cry wolf. <laughs> there you go. And on that note, Roz, amazing to have you on this show, catch up with a fellow Wikimedian, uh, as well as a fellow podcaster. Last question, where can our listeners best learn from you, follow you? What are your social media links? Give, tell us again where we can find your podcast, your writing. Yeah, sure. Um, basically, you can follow me on Twitter. It's uh, Hell Shabby. I guess we'll link it or something. <laughs> we will. Uh, yeah. Cool. That would be great. Um, I'm mostly active on, on Twitter. And besides that, you can find me at somehowimanage.blog, where I write some managerial or leadership blog posts, or techpointcharlie.blog, or techpointcharlie anywhere else would be the podcast. That's fantastic. And for our listeners, be sure to check those out. You know, Roz has a lot of great insights as well as his other co-hosts on all things tech. And of course, I love the name and you'll have to go visit Berlin to really understand it. But, uh, well, you don't have to. You can just look it up on Wikipedia, for instance. But also visit. visit. Yeah. Yeah, please do visit Berlin. We'll, we'll be part of the Berlin Promotional uh, Council here before this podcast is done. <laughs> Roz, it's so amazing to have you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Developmentor podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Even better, please leave us a review. If you want to hear older episodes, leave feedback or sign up to be a guest, please visit us at developmentor.com. If you'd like to support the show, there are three ways you can help out. One, make a donation via Patreon. 
too. If you're a software engineer looking for your next gig and wanting to practice interviewing, use our referral link to the interviewing.io platform. And three, buy your next tech book from Manning Publications using our affiliate link. All of those links can be found at developmentor.com slash support dash us. That's S-U-P-P-O-R-T dash U-S. All one word. Most importantly, if you like this show, please tell your friends. Referrals are the lifeblood of any podcast. Finally, we here at Developmentor hope that each and every episode helps you move one step closer to finding your path.